We're going to speak with Diane, a third-year medical student today, uh, who's, who was a non-traditional applicant who changed her life course. She was originally a nurse and decided to become a physician. We're going to discuss how she prepared her application, as well as a new dating application, which recently led to her engagement. Helping you prepare for one of the most rewarding careers in the world. This is Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with your host, the Dean of Admissions at the University of Utah School of Medicine, Dr. Benjamin Chan. Welcome to another edition of Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with Dr. Chan. Uh, I have a great guest with me today, uh, one of our star medical students, Diane. Hello, everyone. Now, Diane's a very special, uh, has a special journey, how she became a doctor. And uh, that's one of the main reasons I wanted to interview her for this podcast. And so far, uh, when I go out and talk to uh, students at undergraduate colleges and universities, I am frequently approached by individuals who have already gone down a different health science path, meaning I am approached by pharmacists, nurses, physician assistants, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I'm excited to talk to Diane today because uh, she at one point in time was a nurse. Uh, help me understand the decision. What, what attracted you to nursing and then what attracted you to medicine? I uh, went into my undergraduate program at Brigham Young University mm-hmm. and I was planning on pursuing psychiatry. Um, I took a couple of classes in psychology and absolutely hated theory. Uh, so I decided that that wasn't the route for me. Um, At that point, I kind of started to consider other options that made logical sense. Um, Initially, it was more of a logical approach rather than that I found, you know, my niche or my passion. Um, But I pursued, I took a couple of classes in anatomy and physiology um, and found some that really just clicked. You know, it seemed like that was my place. The human body was so fascinating for me. Uh, So I decided that I would at that point pursue a a degree in nursing and if it so happened that I was able to continue my education on to a master's level or doctorate level mm-hmm. um, or could, you know, attend medical school, then that would be ideal. I'm going to jump in here and ask a question. I have heard, Diane, that the nursing program at BYU is incredibly competitive. Is this true? Uh, I think it's become more competitive since I left, okay. I will say. Uh, but it was definitely a challenge. I applied twice okay. uh, to get into their nursing program. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Again, you know, the second time was able to get in. Very cool. So, yeah. so you decided to become a nurse. How did you choose what field of nursing you went into? Um, well, I think it was just a matter of experience, I guess. So prior to starting nursing school, I decided that I would get my um, EMT. Mm-hmm. And so I did that through the state of Utah and was able to get a job in the emergency departments so during nursing school, I worked full-time, which was actually not recommended, mm-hmm. and I um, worked as a critical care tech, is what we were called, in the emergency departments. So I got a lot of exposure there to emergency medicine and to um, some ICU medicine when we would go up to the intensive care units uh, with the patients to drop them off or, um, you know, with a lot of the nurses that I worked with in the emergency department who also worked in the ICU. So I kind of, with that exposure, started to open my eyes more to the world of ICU Mm -hmm. nursing and um, fought really hard, actually, to get a capstone. Mm -hmm. Uh, So your senior year, you would do kind of this elective, they call it a capstone, Mm -hmm. uh, just kind of work on the unit as though you were working there full time and get a lot of exposure and hopefully get a job there. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did my, my senior year, my last semester. I capstoned in the thoracic ICU, and I absolutely loved it. Awesome. And how long did you work as a nurse? Uh, It was about four years total. So I graduated in 2008 and then um, started medical school in 2011. Okay. 
So at what point in time did you decide to go back to medical school? Uh, well, you know, it was kind of one of those things that was always in the back of my mind as a really wonderful option, but maybe not that realistic um, considering, you know, the eventual goal of getting married, having children. I just didn't know how that would really fit into my life. Uh, but as I continued down uh, this career in nursing, I guess I just discovered that I wasn't completely content uh, with where I was at mm -hmm. um, from an educational standpoint. So it wasn't so much that the experience wasn't what I expected because I, again, loved ICU nursing, um, loved the patients, loved how complicated they were, kind of the critical um, emergency type nature of it. Um, all of that I, I absolutely loved, but I just felt like as a physician, I could really make a bigger difference in the lives of these patients. Okay. I also found that, you know, when I would be at work, I would relate very well to the physicians mm. and I would find myself frustrated with the amount of information that I didn't understand. Mm -hmm. And even when I'd go to resources to try and understand them more in depth, there was a lot of terminology and just like background physiology that was missing. And so things didn't quite make sense like I would hope they would. Okay. So it sounds like it was a gradual decision. There was not one like aha moment that you had. Not exactly. Okay. I mean, oh. I did have one point where I got in a car accident after a late night shift. And okay kind of realized that I wasn't fulfilling my full potential and I wasn't going to be happy um, okay. in a few years. And so I guess at that point, that was the big, you need to do this, even though, you know, even though it's scary, even though there were a lot of challenges ahead of me, because basically I ended up having to um, redo a lot of undergraduate classes in mm -hmm. order to be a good applicant. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about that. So you're a nurse, you decide to go back to medical school. How did you approach the situation? What did you do? Oh, I don't remember clearly everything. I think I initially contacted um, one of the pre-medical advisement centers. Okay. Probably it was BYU's at right. first. Um, and just kind of tried to figure out exactly which courses I had already taken that fulfilled the requirements for specifically the University of Utah, mm -hmm. um, because that was my first choice. Because you're living in Utah at the time. So mm -hmm. you're a Utah resident. Okay, go mm -hmm. on. Yeah. And, um, but also other schools outside of the state of Utah. And um, so I kind of looked at these, the requirements and analyzed what classes I had already taken. And then I may have met with a pre-med advisor at some point there just to get a little bit of direction as to which class would be the best for different institutions. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, some institutions would require calculus or biochemistry or, mm -hmm. you know, different things that I wasn't sure yeah. if I... Every institution is different. That's correct. Um, at the U, uh, you know, there is the standard pre-medical requirements of um, two years of chemistry, one year of organic, one year of inorganic, with labs, year of physics, year of biology, um, those type of standard kind of classes. So you talked about the pre-med requisites. What about, like, our specific criteria for the University of Utah School of Medicine? And right now we have five. We have physician shadowing patient exposure, uh, leadership, community service, and research. So does any of those strike you? Like when you look back um, at how you prepared for medical school, how did you tackle those different areas? Um, you know, for me, I guess preparing for medical school, it was a matter of just... I don't recall looking at all of those specific requirements in the mm -hmm. beginning mm -hmm. and searching out opportunities to fulfill them. 
I just remember really being involved in trying to be the best, mm -hmm. I guess, medical professional that I could be. So I, um, I made an effort to expose myself to as many different opportunities as I could, mm -hmm. and specifically to as many leadership opportunities as I could. So I, um, I mean, obviously with my nursing background, I had a lot of exposure um, to patients. Mm -hmm. um, I had some shadowing, although I ended up doing a lot more shadowing, mm -hmm. um, just in an effort to fulfill requirements and to make sure this is what sure. I wanted to do. And let me break in with a little tip here. One of the things we recommend anyone who's applying to our medical school is to have a wide range of physician shadowing, meeting specialists such as cardiologists or dermatologists, as well as primary care physicians, such as family practice doctors, pediatricians, internal medicine doctors, uh, people like that. When I'm listening to you, Diane, it sounds like you were already engaged in a lot of these activities through your nursing career. Mm -hmm. And when you applied to med school, it sounds like it was a natural extension of a lot of the same things that you were doing. Would that be accurate to say? I think so. Okay. I mean, I remember there were a few things that I um, tried to pursue more aggressively once I made the decision to apply to medical school. But for the most part, it was just kind of who I was at that point. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Um, another question I get a lot is MCAT. Like Dr. Chan, people come up to me and say, Dr. Chan, I'm a non-traditional student. I've been out of school for a few years. What advice can you give me for studying and taking the MCAT? And what would you say to that, Diane? So I um, have never been the best test taker. Okay. Um, I'm also a little bit stubborn at times, All and right. I refuse to pay thousands of dollars to take you know, some of these MCAT courses that are out there. Although, if you look at some of the research, you know, a lot of people have a lot of success with them. Mm -hmm. So personally, what I did to study for the MCAT, and I did end up taking it twice, although my second score wasn't much different from my first. Mm -hmm. um, but I took that massive Kaplan MCAT review book, okay. and I locked myself in a room for a number of weeks, basically. Okay. <laughs> and I studied. Hope you got food and water in between. Yes, yeah, okay. uh, just a little. All right. You know? You know, your regular break, 30 minutes of watching House or whatever your okay. guilty pleasure might be, and mm -hmm. then you go right back to studying. So, okay. yeah. But uh, it passes. It's mm -hmm. a short period. You can do anything for a short period of time. And, you know, mm -hmm. I think that if you apply yourself well and study well, then you can find success in that. So Excellent. So, again, it's been years. Uh, when I took the MCAT, it was actually still a paper and pencil test. And I remember very distinctly that there's a big group of us that took the test. And it was like in a classroom uh, down here at the University of Utah on main campus. And I remember there was three or four individuals who showed up wearing scrubs. So I'm not sure if they were trying to exert some sort of psychological advantage <laughs> over the of us who were not wearing scrubs. Yeah. Uh, but Diane, can you tell people uh, like what the MCAT looks like nowadays and how that compares to other tests that you might take in medical school? Yeah, so the MCAT, to be honest, is a little bit of a blur. Uh, mm -hmm. I do remember wearing scrub pants. Okay, there we go. But in my defense, it was because they were comfortable. However, Asserting your dominance over the computer, <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. But I did wear um, some fake nerdy glasses, I remember, mm -hmm. with the intention that maybe it would intimidate a few other students, but really it would just make me kind of subconsciously feel like, Hey, you're smart. You're nerdy. You've okay. got this, you know? <laughs> okay, very good. So, so I remember wearing that, um, and I just came comfortable. And, you know, I, I even went to the, the testing center beforehand and made sure that I knew how to get there, what the check-in procedure was mm -hmm. like, how cold it was, you know, things like that that are, might seem a little over the top but really can make all the difference in, in how you perform. Mm -hmm. So I made those efforts. Um, 
As far as the test itself, it was computerized. Okay. Um, I forget exactly how many hours it was. I mm -hmm. want to say four. Mm -hmm. um, and as far as how the test compares to exams in medical school, I would say it's surprisingly similar. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the interesting things that I noticed as I was studying for the MCAT was a lot of the questions would basically assume that you came in with a certain level of knowledge. It would teach you a concept through the question and then would ask you to evaluate and analyze and basically come to the appropriate conclusion with combining those two things. Um, and I would say medical school is an extension of that. Mm -hmm. um, they take those same kind of learning uh, steps and uh, force you to analyze information and do what they call the triple jump. So you come in with a certain amount of information, you have to make the correct conclusion after the second jump, and then the third jump is coming to the third conclusion following a little bit more information. So I they like that, the triple jump. Lead you down this path and then hope mm -hmm. you make the right decision. So. Great. Well, obviously, you got into the University of Utah School of Medicine. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, tell me about your interview day. How'd that go? What happened? Um, interview day. So they said, don't be late. And I thought, well, that would be the worst decision ever would be to show up late for my interview. So mm -hmm. I woke up early. Uh, it was in the winter. And I was coming from my sister's house. And my car was covered in snow. So I woke up extra early anticipating this. Um, on the way to my interview, I got a ticket. Well, I got pulled over, I should say. Oh, wow. Which was exactly what I was hoping for right before I went in for the biggest <laughs> day of my life up to that point. So um, didn't get a ticket. The officer was telling me that I had to clean out the corners of my windshield from the, with mm -hmm. the snow instead of mm -hmm. just, you know, the view area, I guess. So Another Dr. Chan tip. Before you drive your car, make sure it is fully uh, uh, wiped off of all snow including, sounds like headlights. Yeah. Yeah, windshield part. Yeah, all that. All right, all keep on it. going. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that kind of flustered me a little bit, but I actually told the, the officer that I was on my way to interview at the School of Medicine, and he said, well, drive safely, don't speed, and you'll mm -hmm. be fine. I'm sure you'll do well. So that was a nice little bit of encouragement. Mm -hmm. um, I showed up the morning of the interview at the School of Medicine, didn't actually know exactly where I was going, which is another reason why I would suggest you know, kind of finding your way around campus perhaps beforehand. Um, but I was able to find the appropriate office and I was actually the first person there. So I, um, I just tried to be myself. I remember um, talking to a lot of the, uh, I remember talking to each of the applicants that was there, that were there with me and trying to get to know their background stories mm -hmm. as well as um, some of the individuals who were helping with the admissions um, secretaries and whatnot. And, uh, yeah. And that's how the day started. And then okay. it was kind of, so how many interviews did you get? Um, at that time we only did two interviews. Correct. So when Diane interviewed, there was two faculty members who interviewed, uh, today, this year, um, there's three interviews. So everyone is interviewed by two faculty members and one fourth year medical student. Um, each interview is weighted the same. It's not like the faculty interview is worth more than the medical student interview. So all three interviews are equally weighted. So um, do you remember anything about the interviewers or is it just a blur? Uh, no, I remember them quite well, actually. Um, one was the chief of general surgery. Okay. Um, and he and I, you know, I went into the interview and I felt like I was talking to a good friend. You know, I, there mm -hmm. wasn't, 
I think a lot of people go into those being very nervous and I just tried to go in and present myself as I was. I, you know, they had my application there. They basically knew me without even asking me questions. So I kind of took the, um, the approach that they wanted to see, you know, if I was a real person or if I was this nerdy type who had no social skills. So I just tried to be myself. I remember talking to him about, he asked what my strengths were, what my, what my weaknesses were in my application. Um, and we talked about those and then, um, he kind of threw this curveball at me uh-huh. at the end and asked me about what book I had read recently that was medically related, but not textbook. Mm. And I, you know, just, I guess, luckily, well, maybe not so luckily, but I threw out about three different books that I'd been reading that were actually really fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we talked about those and, so that was a really, really great interview, and I felt really wonderful coming out of that. Mm-hmm. And then I remember going to lunch um, after that, before my second interview. And lunch was nice. I'm guessing you'll probably get to this, but we would sit down with um, the second-year medical students. Mm-hmm. And we had lunch with them and could just talk to them in a very um, off-the-record kind of environment. So we asked them questions about you know, why they liked the U or what they wish would be different, those kinds of things. And that was really refreshing. And then um, after that, I met with another, I think he was, um, I don't think he was a physician. I think he was a PhD. Okay. Oh, no, actually, I take that back. He was a physician. I don't remember his name. Well, let me jump in right here. So yeah. what Diane raises is an interesting point. So when I, when I say faculty, that also included, includes our PhD. Um, and increasingly, we have more and more master's level individuals who are also on faculty. Uh, who do research or who interact with the medical students in a wide variety of areas. So um, the most of the interviewers are MDs, but there are a handful of PhDs, uh, master levels, and even a handful of DOs who do interviews for us, who are actually are on faculty here at the University of Utah. So go on. How was your mm-hmm. second interview? If you could rate my first interview as me coming out feeling like it was a 9 or a 10 out of 10, mm-hmm. the second interview f- was a polar opposite. Mm. I came out um, feeling like... He hated me, and there was absolutely no chance that I was going to get into medical school at the U. Mm. Um, Sorry to hear that. Yeah. No, but, um, I mean, again, I just tried to present myself as I am. um, And it was kind of interesting because I felt like we had a lot of things that we connected on as far as, you know, some of my different experiences leading up to going to medical or trying to get into medical school. Um, And so I kind of anticipated that the interview would be a little bit less um, intimidating, but you know, I mean, you're not going to get along with or really click with everyone that you mm-hmm. interact with in medicine. So I didn't, I tried not to think too much about it and just showed him who I was. Okay. Well, obviously you did well, you got in. Okay. Hooray, enough. hooray. <laughs> um, and how's your experience been so far? It's been really wonderful. I really like the university of Utah overall. I think that the school is a really great institution. Um, you know, a lot of people make commentary about uh, different programs, I think, in undergrad and as graduate programs where you have to do a lot of what they would call fluffy work mm-hmm. or like, you know, excess writings, reflective writings, things like that. And I really can't look back at anything that I've done thus far and say that it was not worth the time. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, a lot of it is perspective. And if you go into different experiences kind of looking forward to what you can glean from them, then you end up having a better experience. So 
we have a lot of unique programs here at the U. Um, one of them is called the LCE or uh, SCE, so it's Longitudinal Clinical Experience mm -hmm. or Subspecialty Clinical Experience. Mm -hmm. And those start halfway through your first year. And so with that, basically once a week approximately you um, go outside of your normal class time during the day and you work alongside a provider and just get a little bit of exposure to the world of family medicine, pediatrics, mm -hmm. um, I think internal medicine, mm -hmm. and then subspecialties sub such as ophthalmology, cardiology, um, all sorts of different ones, dermatology, I think. Yeah. yeah. So. so, yeah, what Diane mentions is uh, the LCSE experience, not... You know, our medical school, um, you know, gone is the day when you're in class from 8 to 5. Um, here goodness. at this, thank goodness, <laughs> yes, I agree. Um, at our medical school, we, per we firmly believe a good balance in, uh, you know, family life, work and play, as well as academics. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? Um, so during the first year, correct me if I'm wrong, um, you have class in the afternoon from one, 1 to 5. Mm -hmm. um, once a week in Amulab lab in the morning. Yes. All right? But again, that leaves plenty of time to study, spend time with your family, pursue mm -hmm. hobbies. And the second year, it's kind of the opposite. Um, classes eight to noon, and every once in a while, like a, you know, an LCSE experience in the afternoon or things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so we wanted to introduce medical students uh, with patients much earlier in their medical school training. Again, when I went through, which is not that long ago, um, we. Uh, did not actually see our first patient until like third year. Boom, third year. And all of a sudden, uh, you go from kind of being in class all day or half the day to interacting with patients. So we created this program with LCSE to have first-year medical students um, start interacting with patients out in the clinics. And this has really helped with clinical skills, being comfortable around patients, taking histories, um, and just how a hospital or a clinic works, things like that. So a lot of times people ask me, like, Dr. Chan, do students have time to pursue other interests during medical school? Or is it just study, study, study? And what would you say to that, Diane? Um, well, I think what you had mentioned earlier with regards to the amount of time that we spend in class versus how much time we have out of mm -hmm. class to study. Um, I mean, when you're in class, you're expected to be ready to go. Mm -hmm. You know, you hit the ground running. Hopefully you've done whatever studying or reading you need to do beforehand so that you can understand the concepts well. Um, and then after that, there's plenty of time to do whatever you would like. So a lot of, um, I would say that the majority of the students in our class were still quite physically active. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the beautiful thing about the University of Utah is its location to, you know, next to this beautiful outdoor environment. So a lot of people in the winter would go skiing. I mean, my friend... Allie skied over 40 days this mm -hmm. last year, which is second year of medical school, which was quite crazy mm -hmm. um, and very impressive that she was able to meet that goal. Um, others of us are into rock climbing and mountain mm -hmm. biking, um, you know, different outdoor activities. And then for those who are more city life oriented, mm -hmm. there's also that, um, which is not really me. I'm more of an outdoors enthusiast. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess that's why I mentioned that more than the others. Well, I had heard that you like to travel. Where have, you tra where have you traveled to during your medical school days? Uh, so I traveled a lot prior to medical school. Kind okay. of That's kind of where my addiction Where began. have you gone? Uh, so uh, following, actually it was in the middle of my um, undergraduate degree. I lived in Mexico for about a year. Okay. Um, I have also traveled. I've hiked Kilimanjaro um, in Africa. Mm -hmm. I've traveled throughout Europe, 
Uh, usually my trips are five to six weeks on end. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a trip coming up pretty soon here that I'm really excited about where I'm going to Nepal. Uh, to the base of Everest, and I'll be working with um, a few different researchers on a project up there. Cool. At one of the can you tell us what it is, or is it a secret? No, it's uh, it's called the Sleep Aid Study, okay. and uh, basically we'll be investigating um, acute mountain sickness and how uh, positive airway pressures um, at specifically at night mm-hmm. will affect um, you know whether or not people develop acute mountain sickness. Coming so basically, what it is is when people go from a lower uh, altitude to a higher altitude too quickly, um, their body has a hard time compensating, and so a lot of people will take medications to try and um, kind of deal with those symptoms. But sometimes the medications aren't enough, and so there's a theory that by adding uh, pressure, that it can while you're sleeping, that it can kind of ward off those symptoms and help you to manage um, what's going on physiologically within the body. Okay. So that's the study. Excellent. So I'm glad you have time to go and travel. That sounds yeah. like really fun. And plus you're right in the middle of your third year, correct? This is correct. All right. And what rotation are you on right now? I'm currently on my psych rotation. Psychiatry. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And what, what rotation did you start the year at? I started with internal medicine. Okay. So let's kind of you know educate people about this. So during your third year, um, you do internal medicine and you do six weeks before, you know, the first half of the year and six mm-hmm. weeks after. So Correct. a total of 12 weeks of medicine, mm-hmm. uh, a total of six weeks of psychiatry, uh, six weeks of OBGYN. Correct. Six weeks of general surgery. Correct. Two weeks of a surgical subspecialty. Mm-hmm. Four weeks of family practice. And yes. then four weeks in neurology. And then six weeks in pediatrics. Pediatrics. Thank mm-hmm. you. That's why I'm, I'm glad to have someone here help because I always forget. <laughs> So, um, you know, let's jump back to internal medicine days. Can you remember those? It's only last month, right? Yeah. What was your typical day like uh, on internal medicine? What time did you wake up? What did you have to, I mean, what is a medical, because I get that question a lot. It's hard for me to describe. Like, what do medical students do during their third year? So let's talk about internal medicine. A good place to start. Yeah. Um, So for me, my internal medicine rotation, I spent the first three weeks in an outpatient setting, which was a lot more relaxed than the final three weeks. Mm-hmm. So the first three weeks, um, you know, the clinic would open at eight o'clock, uh, generally. So I'd get there at about seven, seven thirty. 30, mm-hmm. um, read up on my patients that I hadn't had a chance to read up on prior to that. And, um, just, and what clinic, where, where'd you go? I went to a clinic called the Redstone clinic okay. up in park city. All right. Were there Redstones? Uh, yeah. Okay. Good in to the know. distance more than the next right. to me. But that was a yeah. non sequitur. Keep on going. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and I worked with a really impressive physician up there. Mm-hmm. And, um, again, you know, she was she was really great at giving me a lot of autonomy. And I would kind of say, this patient looks really interesting to me, and I would love to be able to talk to them, do the physical exam. Mm-hmm. So, generally, that's what the interview um, with the patient would entail, is I would do what I could to um, kind of know their case or at least their chief complaint coming into the visit. Uh, beforehand, and then I'd go in and interview them and get a good history of what had, what their life had been like up to that point, and their the history of the illness, mm-hmm. um, and then do a physical exam. And then after that, I would go to my preceptor or my attending physician who was overseeing uh, what I was doing and present the patient um, more formally. And then um, from that point, we would kind of discuss what the plan was moving mm-hmm. forward with the patient and then go in and present the plan to the patient. Okay. So those were the three weeks of, um, 
of my outpatient rotation. How many patients would you see a day do you, on average? Um, me personally, I would see anywhere from one to two an hour for about eight hours. Okay. And so, so the 16 maybe. So the, yeah, so 16 total, but the physician would be seeing other patients kind of correct, like kind of in the other rooms. Okay. She saw about double what I saw. So I take about every other patient. Did you take call during these three weeks about patient medicine? No, no, no call. call. What about weekends going off? Weekends off. All right. Mm-hmm. I like, I, I keep on going. Done at five o'clock at the, well, five thirty at the uh, latest. And then you're so free to do what you want. So during your internal medicine outpatient portion, more or less kind of a 7.30, 8 mm-hmm. o'clock to 5 p.m. kind of responsibility. Okay. Yeah. All right. What it about may- inpatient? Uh, outpatient made internal medicine a lot more appealing than inpatient internal medicine okay. uh, was. Well, at least for most people. And I, I don't mind the hospital hours, but obviously, you know, the physicians need to be available, mm-hmm. you know, pretty much 24-7. Um, our rotations, internal medicine, inpatient would consist of me um, – being at the hospital by about 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. at the latest, um, some days earlier. And because of where I was living, that meant I would get up at about 4.30, 4.45 every morning. Okay. Um, Very early. Yeah. yeah. Could be worse. Mm-hmm. Could be worse. Um, and then I would uh, arrive at the unit, and basically we would pick up patients that had been admitted overnight and do you know the full workup, if you will, where mm-hmm. we kind of assess everything that's going on, analyze the labs that had been done on admittance, that kind of thing, and determine basically, um, you know, what what kind of the plan was for the patient going forward. And then I would go and visit with the patients um, on my own and do my physical exam and then come back and write the note for the patient for that day. And I would have it prepared prior to when the attending came around. And the attending would show up at usually nine o'clock on the dot and Mm -hmm. they meant business when they got there, you know, you better have had your note written, Mm -hmm. you better have seen the patient and you better have done a good job. Mm -hmm. Basically they expected a lot. And what you're describing is rounds, correct? Mm -hmm. All right. Cause like, I think that word is out there in the community a lot. Like what does rounds mean? So it sounds like Mm -hmm. internal medicine rounds meant, um, preparing your note, uh, seeing your patient, getting all the information available and then presenting it to the attending, or would you present it to the team, or how did that look like in internal medicine? So I guess the preparation leading up to when the attending got there would be considered Mm pre-rounding, technically. Okay. Um, And then once the attending arrived, usually we would walk around with our team, and we would round, Mm -hmm. quote-unquote. So rounding, with my team, we had two interns, a resident, myself, the medical student, and the attending. Okay. And then we also often had um, a... uh, pharmacist with us and Mm -hmm. some pharmacy students so uh sometimes there were eight of us Mm -hmm. uh they in nursing we used to make fun of the doctors uh because we'd all walk around they'd walk around in their white coats Mm -hmm. we'd call them the gaggle of geese Mm -hmm. so if you've ever heard that that's what they're referring to as were you in geese formation led by the attending definitely okay good to know good so as you (laughs) as a medical attending yeah you as a medical student were near the back then yeah okay Good to know. Back of the line. Mm-hmm. Um, in other institutions, you're wearing your short coat, which means that you don't, mm-hmm. you know, you're not quite as accomplished as a student doctor or, or a physician. Well, you mentioned medical students, residents, attendings, and pharmacists. Were nursing were nurses involved in rounds? Uh, not for us. Okay. What do you think no. about that as a former nurse? Um, you know, I actually would make an effort when I was in, on internal medicine, for example, I tried to make an effort to go and meet with the nurses who'd been taking care of the patients overnight mm-hmm. prior to when they left, mm-hmm. um, which was usually 7.30 in the morning when they would leave. Um, 
And I know that they kind of thought it was a little bit weird, to be mm -hmm. honest. And I didn't tell them, you know, my background or anything like that. But, you know, I, as I've gotten, as I've worked more and more in the hospital from um, the perspective of a medical student, I've noticed that a lot of times there's a disconnect between nursing and the physicians. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the nursing staff does their charting and we do a great job of making sure that everything is very well documented, especially with ICU medicine. I can really speak to that and emergency mm -hmm. medicine as well. Um, so, but a lot of times the physicians don't read through the nurse's notes. And so again, there's that disconnect. And I really think that, you know, one of the beautiful things about psychiatry mm -hmm. um, is that we do, when we do rounds on mm. the psychiatric units, we meet with the nurses um, and when you think about it, the nurses are spending, you know, 24 hours with these patients, mm -hmm. whereas you as a physician have maybe 10, 15 minutes, probably at a maximum that you're actually spending with the patient mm -hmm. in their presence. So the nurses are able to um, give you a lot of insight that you might otherwise not, you know, pick up on, I guess. Sure. So going back to rounds. So what time do rounds start around nine? You said usually kind of yes. tending specific, I guess. Mm -hmm. How long would rounds go in internal medicine? <laughs> Um, it depended on patient load and on how, so each attending um, is very different in their approach, um, in the amount of detail that they want to know about the patient. Uh, for a lot of attendings, rounds would be done by noon. Okay, three hours. Mm -hmm. Wow. And you said patient load. So how many patients were on the team and how many patients did you carry as the medical student? Um, so on our team, the interns um, who were supervised by the resident and then all of us were supervised again by the um, attending. The interns would could be could take a maximum of ten encounters each per day. Okay. So an encounter would be classified as a patient if you had any sort of interaction with them at all that day. So regardless of if they stayed, you know, through the day or and were discharged in the evening, discharged in the morning, or stayed, you know, twenty four hours that day. Mm -hmm. Basically, that was considered an encounter. On average, our team probably had, we, we had a pretty heavy load while I was there, um, comparatively. There were other teams that had less patients that they were carrying. Uh, we would have probably six to seven patients per intern mm -hmm. um, every day. Okay. Of those, you know, the interns would kind of oversee what I did. Um, but to be honest, I tried to be as autonomous as possible and would just kind of do the work up on my own and then you know, kind of ask for their input, I guess, last minute. Would you practice presenting to the intern before you present to the attending? I did not. However, okay. that might have been a good approach, especially <laughs> okay. in the beginning. Another Dr. Chan tip for all the future medical students out there. Yeah. You always can practice presenting before presenting to the attending. So. And presenting is a very difficult art I'm finding. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I mean, I've given report on patients for years mm -hmm. and everyone's style is a little bit different um, with regards to attendings and even mm -hmm. as you know students and how you present that information it's kind of unique but most of of medicine um, is very structured and they have a certain way that they want it presented correct and if you don't present it the way that they would like or you leave out certain information you'll find that the attending will kind of jump to a conclusion um, such that they don't think you really know the patient as well as maybe you do. Mm -hmm. And so they will have a tendency to interrupt when you're um, presenting the patient and will kind of move on. Okay. Yeah. So you have to be... But like there's this window of opportunity. Exactly. To shine, I guess. Exactly. Right. Yeah. The pressure was on. 
So at noon, yeah. rounds are done. Mm-hmm. What what do you do as a team or as a medical student from noon on in internal medicine? So it would depend on um, internal medicine. You you would admit patients that would come into the emergency department and needed to go to the floor. Um, some days, you know, you would admit in the morning, some in the afternoon, some later on, even into evening hours. So it kind of just depended on where you were as far as um, whether or not you were supposed to be admitting patients. But that's generally what we would do. Mm-hmm. Um, we would spend most of our time, like I said, admitting the patients from the emergency department, which um, was the entire workup that needed to be done um, with their history and everything. Um, and then if we weren't doing that, there was a lot of follow-up. Um, a lot of these patients on internal medicine are, are sick and require a, a number of consults from different services. Mm-hmm. So we would um, request consults, follow up on the consults, try to just manage the care of the patient overall. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you say consult, you mean like if your patient complained of chest pain, you would maybe ask cardiology to come by and like examine and see the patient and write down recommendation, correct? Exactly, yeah. 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 Right. Cool. So how late would you stay at the hospital? Uh, depended, again, on if we were um, admitting patients or not. But the earliest I think I left was maybe 3.30, okay. a couple of days, mm-hmm. one or two days. Um, generally 8 o'clock or 9 right. p.m. What about call as a medical student on internal medicine? Um, so we didn't have on-call nights okay. right. on where I was doing my service. What about weekends? Uh, I would work six days a week and I'd have one day off. Okay. All right. Did so. you get a voice in that? Like which day you took off? I personally did. Okay. Um, so I know it just kind of depended on the team mm-hmm. and mostly on the resident. The resident was really, uh, it, it's kind of interesting, the hierarchy, but the resident really acts almost as though they were the attending. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the attending will, you know, chime in and kind of correct the resident basically if, if anything is going down the wrong path or if they're incorrect. Basically, um, so, so the resident was the one who was managing the team overall and would say, you know, what day do you want off? And I'd be able to request a Wednesday or whatever I would like. Excellent. Well, we have a few more minutes and then I want to talk about some interesting stuff. So, well, again, I'm out there a lot talking to applicants and sometimes I get questions about social life and social activities. So Diane, like, did, did you have time to have a social life in medical school? Yes. Um, (laughs) And I know what you're getting at, Dr. Chan, (laughs) and I'll get there. Um, So I did have a social life. Um, It was kind of what I made of it, I guess. I feel like Mm -hmm. compared to the majority of medical students, I tried really hard to be as normal as possible. Okay. Um, It's really easy to get lost in the books. As you'll study, you learn that, you know, it's that analogy of a pond of water and you put one drop in and then you see the ripples and as it kind of expands out, you realize how much you don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so at some point, you know, you kind of have to be willing to say, okay, I'm not going to fully grasp everything at this exact moment, but continue to, you know, make a lot of effort and you'll find that you start to learn and pick up on a lot more than you think that you have. Um, so I made a lot of effort, uh, to have a social life, um, and to date as much as possible, which proved to be quite frustrating mm. for, um, most of my medical school career thus far. Um, however, did you date any classmates? No. Do classmates date each other? They do. All right. That'll be a sneak preview for future podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> in many cases, it's, I mean, in most 
circumstances, I would say probably not recommended, mm-hmm. but definitely happens. Mm-hmm. Um, Why would you not recommend classmates dating? I think just mostly for obvious reasons. Um, if things don't work out and you have to interact with them every day mm-hmm. in that kind of a setting. Because you're in the same cohort ugly. year after year. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. So... And personally, for me, I actually, I wanted to find someone who wasn't in medicine uh, because I wanted to have a little bit of diversity in my life, okay. if you will, where I could come home and talk to my husband about what he'd done during the day and it wouldn't revolve around patients and cases and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, so I, um, my second year, which is, again, probably, I would say, as far as the learning experience is concerned, um, and the amount of time spent, you know, really aggressively studying second year is probably the most intense. Mm-hmm. Um, so during my second year, I was foolish and maybe foolish and listened to one of my roommates, um, when she told me about this new dating app for the iPhone called Tinder, uh, which I do recommend, but not if you don't have a lot of time because <laughs> it became quite an addiction. <laughs> Um, so explain what Tinder is to yeah. those who do not, which I actually am included in that. So. <laughs> um, Tinder is an interesting app. It's only on iPhones at this point, as far as I know. And um, basically, you have to have a Facebook account initially. Mm-hmm. And it, it associates um, your Facebook account with your Tinder account. And it will create a profile for you based off of um, just a couple of your pictures from Facebook. And you can pick which ones they are. Um and so you don't answer like it's not like match where you have to like answer questions. No. Okay, no. just based on pictures. It takes about three seconds to sign up, okay. which is probably why I was willing to even give it a shot. Okay, all right. And mostly I started as a joke, really. Okay. But um, yeah. So it's kind of a it's similar in a way to Hot or Not, but it's a lot more classy. Mm-hmm. If any of you remember Hot or Not, the website. Um, basically the way it's set up is you can say, I want to look for individuals within a certain vicinity Mm -hmm. and it goes up to a hundred miles, um, in diameter, I believe. Um, and then you, it'll pop up pictures of other people who are on Tinder and you can see their first name, their age. Um, if you have any mutual friends from Facebook or mutual interests from Facebook. Okay. I see, I see how this works. Okay. Keep on going. Yeah. And then if you happen to find the person attractive, which is, which is why I say it's kind of like hot or not. So if you find this person to be attractive and you say that, yes, you're, you're interested and they also do the same, then it will match you. Mm. So it, it's kind of like a game because you just keep you know, looking at people saying like, no, 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 yes. And then if they mm-hmm. say yes and you get all excited because all of a sudden you have this new match. And anyway, does Tinder make a special sound when a match occurs? Oh, I don't know. I think I usually have my phone on silent. Oh, okay. So. I'm just, Actually, imagine, I'm just yeah. imagining like a special tone or ringtone or something. It must. Yeah. It must. For any entrepreneurs out there, get on that. So. <laughs> exactly. So um, I happened to meet this uh, very unique looking gentleman. Um, unique as in his, his story um, seemed to be unique. You know, he wasn't like a lot of the other men that I met on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, I, I said that I was interested. He did the same. It matched us, and we started um, communicating via this texting portion that was built into the app. Mm-hmm. Um, initially, uh, and this app is free, right? Yeah. Okay. All currently right. free. Buy stock in it. Exactly. <laughs> I, know, I, I can see where the story is going. Keep I on highly going, recommend it. Yeah. So um, his name is Michael. Okay. He's a very impressive young man, and uh, we started texting basically through this app, and then 
um, ultimately exchanged numbers and met in person. And that was about, oh, I don't know, months and months ago, March. And now is August? It's all, end of August, yes. So I can't do math on the spot, but that's six months? Six months. <laughs> kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, yeah, so we, we connected via this app and it was, I guess... Love. Okay. So fantastic. Maybe not. I guess. And but so, it was, um, yeah. and it sounds like the status has changed with that. Well, I no longer have Tinder on my phone. It's okay. Just been removed entirely. Um, and Ma Michael and I recently got engaged. Congratulations. So. So it sounds like you're living the dream in med school. Going to go to Nepal next month, and you're yeah. planning a wedding. So. Exactly. Awesome. <laughs> well. Um, this kind of wraps it up. Do you have any questions for me, Diane? Um, I think my only question would be, and I know you and I have actually discussed this before, but I think that it's important for people to know mm -hmm. um, when applying to medical school, you know, a lot of times you'll apply and you might not get in the first time. Mm -hmm. um, if you're sure this is something that you really want mm -hmm. and you're passionate about becoming a physician, then I really encourage you to try again. Um, that said, you can get feedback on your application. So mm -hmm. my only question would be, you know, if someone has tried applying in the past, what would you recommend that they do mm -hmm. in order to um, get the appropriate feedback so that they can sure. change their application? So great question. Um, so it's a very competitive again to medical school. Last year we had over 1,500 applications, fully 102 positions. Um, and so we simply turn away a lot of people who are highly qualified. And nationwide, you know, I go to these meetings with other deans from law school and business school. Um, they've seen decreases or even um, kind of leveling off of their applications. Nationwide, more and more people are applying to medical school. So we've kind of developed a program here where we work very closely with the pre-medical advisors. Um, I give a lot of talks at all the colleges and, and universities in Utah as well as Idaho um, where I'm kind of invited by them to talk to their pre-medical groups or the pre-medical society or what have you. And as such, um, I'm in constant contact with them about changes to our application process, any updates, things of that nature. And to your question, Diane, like what can you do? Um, you know, if you don't get in your first year, I, I recommend to everyone out there to reach out to the pre-med office, you know. What I try to do is, you know, like you said, provide feedback. So going through your application and, and seeing some areas you can improve. Um, but also, ideally, every pre-medical office, you know, should be proofreading your application. Should be sitting down with you and kind of talking about the different options out there. Because maybe our medical school isn't the best match. Um, ideally, each pre-medical office should offer you practice interviews. Because interviews are very important uh, for, in the process. Um, and there's a wealth of information that these individuals have. So our policy here at the University of Utah School of Medicine is work closely with the pre-med advisors. And going back to your question, what can you do? Work with them. Don't give up. It's hard. Try to improve your application and uh, keep applying. And I think, you know, when I talk to the pre-med advisors, they're telling me, on average, they're telling applicants to apply maybe you know, anywhere from 15 to 30 medical schools, including a handful of DO programs. So how many did medical schools did you apply to? Um, well, I applied to, I think, 10 or 13. Okay. All right. I believe. Okay. So yeah, yeah. you were kind of within the ballpark. Mm -hmm. So cool. Well, we're out of time. 
And uh, congratulations, Diane. Thank you. This was great. Uh, and I look forward to hearing more from you in the future. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with Dr. Benjamin Chan, the ultimate resource to help you on your journey to and through medical school. A production of the Scope Health Sciences Radio, online at thescoperadio.com.